Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fascinating show for you this evening. Mark Clark is here, president of Courtesy Aircraft Sales. And as we lead up to going to Oshkosh and the Air Venture Show, what could be better than learning all about warbirds and warbird ownership? And Mark will be there at the show. We'll talk about all sorts of things like that. So it's a great, great opportunity. And I cannot wait to dive into that discussion. Before we get started, a few things. First of all, Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge is in full swing right now. We just gave away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset, and now it is time for us to give away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. Glass for your cockpit that you can have at no charge just by winning the Fly to Win Challenge. We're giving that away August 1st, and all you need to do is get the free Social Flight mobile app for your Android or iPhone and just go to your local uh, airport and check in. And then every time you check in at an airport as you go and fly, you get points. Even if you check in only once, you're entered into a win. The odds are fantastic. And then if you go and check in at many more, you'll get enough points perhaps to get on our leaderboard and get extra entries into our Fly to Win Challenge. So it's just a great uh, opportunity, and I cannot wait for someone to win that Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. Uh, speaking of Air Venture, we will be there, and we're running our Snag Some Swag uh, promotion that we're going to be doing. And so you will see, I will be there walking the grounds. We don't have booth. We're just all over Air Venture, visiting many of our partners. And I'll be there. Jake will be there. Ben will be there. Track one of us down. See us at the show. And if we still have stuff on us from that day, you could get some great social flight swag. We'll just be giving it away as we walk around the show. Um, so we've got that as well as some cool prizes from some of our partners. One last note, we have a really, really cool new feature coming out in Social Flight for the web and for the mobile products. We're not gonna talk too much about what the detail is, but it's going to be coming out soon. It's gonna be fantastic. And we are looking for just a few volunteers from around the country to just help us out as we get this wrapped up and get a little more of the information that we need to make this perfect for you. And so if anyone's interested in helping out, all you need to do is send an, inf uh, an email to info at socialflight.com. That's info, I-N-F-O, at socialflight.com. We'll get back to you, help us out with a little bit of, uh, of help, and uh, it's just going to be a fantastic thing that we'll be announcing here shortly. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by iFlyEFB, by the folks who came up with Adventure Pilot. Absolutely wonderful people, Walter and Juanita Boyd, that created this product. And I'll tell you, iFlyEFB, it, it, if you're looking for an alternative to paying the high dollar value for uh, some of the other uh, EFBs on the market for flight planning, you need to go check this out. Just look for iFlyEFB. There's a free trial. You can check it out for yourself. And uh, again, it's got incredible features, very inexpensive, and I am grateful that they are added to our board here, making all of this available to you here at Social Flight.
So with that, I would like to get to our guest for this evening. Now, if you want to own a Warbird, if you have any Walter Mitty dreams of doing something like this, there is one man at the top of everyone's list, and that is Mark Clark, president of Courtesy Aircraft Sales. Mark has been an aircraft broker for over 45 years and has sold in excess of 2,900 aircraft to date, specializing in historic military aircraft. As a pilot, Mark has logged over 7,500 hours in more than 125 types of aircraft, including more than 1,800 hours in high-performance ex-military aircraft. He holds an unlimited letter from the FAA for all makes and models and is also the recipient of the Wright Brothers Master Pilot Award from the FAA. And in addition to his flying, he also holds an FAA airframe and power plant mechanics certificate. So talk about a well-rounded individual. I mean, having such in-depth and hands-on knowledge of historic aircraft makes Mark Clark the go-to person in the specialized field of war warbird ownership. And we're going to hear all about that tonight. I am going to bring Mark on the line now. Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Mark Clark. How are you doing, Mark? Great. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate the opportunity to come on tonight. And hopefully I can answer a few questions and give you a little insight into a Warbird world and Oshkosh that's coming up and a little bit about my background. So uh, ask away. Well, let's, I mean, let's start with your background because you have probably one of the most fun booths there are uh, at the show at AirVenture because you, you just, you're constantly dabbling in all these, the planes that we all come to see all in one place. So give us some background. How did, how did you become the Mark Clark that, uh, that we all know now that's, that's Mr. Warburg? Well, I, I've always been Mark Clark, but, uh, <laughs> Uh, growing up here in Rockford, and I, I think most people realize that before Oshkosh was in Oshkosh, it was in Rockford from 61 until 61 to 69, 70 was the first year at Oshkosh. So as a teenager, I kind of got dumped out at the airport uh, during the show and slowly gravitated towards warbirds. And uh, my father was a pilot and always had, always had some type of the small airplane and was always involved in sales. He was in the automotive business, but always had an airplane or two for sale. And one day he asked me, he said, would you like to learn to fly? And I said, oh, yeah. I used to ride around with him in, in his airplanes and talk on the radio and navigate with the charts and all of that stuff. And, and he said, would you like to fly? And I said, yeah, I sure would. So he pointed at a guy. We were at the local Cessna Flight Center. And he says, well, you better get over there. He says, there's your instructor. He's ready for your first lesson. Whoa, that, that was pretty cool. And I, I was 15 and three months old. So I took uh, lessons for nine months before I was legally able to solo. So everybody said, how long did it take you solo? Well, it took me 30 hours because I, was, I wasn't old enough yet. But uh, I was lucky to uh, get my uh, solo on my, on my 16th birthday and I got my private on my 17th birthday. And my first passenger was my mother, who was actually a very timid flyer. But she held it all together so I could take her for a ride in a Cherokee 140. And uh, she, she remembered that all, all of her life. She enjoyed that. So wow. I, I pretty nice to be able to do that. No kidding. That's a great, that's a great memory. Um, so what had you start down the journey towards Warbirds? Well, you know, hanging around at um, EAA Rockford in those days, I just gravitated towards the Warbird area. And, you know, as I went through high school, I... I got uh, some additional ratings and started to ferry airplanes for the for courtesy aircraft, the company my dad had at that time. And I 
you know, ferried airplanes every summer. I, I washed airplanes. I polished airplanes. Uh, I would ferry airplanes. When I was 17, this, my birthday's in February, so the summer of my 17th birthday, I took a Cherokee 140 that we had sold, and I delivered it to LaGuardia Airport. So, you know, somebody that about 80 hours total time flying into LaGuardia in a Cherokee 140 was a, it was an educational experience, but it, but it, it was pretty cool. Um, and then I uh, started working as an apprentice mechanic at one of the shops here on the airport and still ferrying airplanes, you know, on weekends and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then I went off four years of college for a degree in marketing, came back to the airport and got a, went back to the same shop as an apprentice mechanic and ferried airplanes on the side, ended up as a co-pilot, got my A&P there as, as an apprentice. Um, and then I ended up as a co-pilot mechanic on a twin engine Cessna for a local company here and then graduated up to co-captain and did that for a couple of years and then decided I wanted to get fully involved in the airplane sales business uh, rather than be a corporate pilot. So, you know, that way I could still fly, but uh, I, I always liked the sales activity and meeting the customers and delivering the airplanes to people. That was, that was a lot of fun. So that's yeah. kind of where it started. And, and that was with regular civilian aircraft. What about warbirds? How did that come into the picture? Um, well, that, that interest I had in warbirds that was sparked really by uh, EAA in Rockford, uh, I, I convinced the president of the company at that time, my father, that we really needed to buy a T-6. So we, we bought a T-6 out of Seattle, and uh, we had a guy pick it up and bring it back here, and he checked me out in the airplane. So I was very fortunate to be flying a T-6 when I was 18. And, Still what, what, what did that argument look like? Of I had to convince my my dad, the owner of the business, that I mean that we needed a T6 because a T6 isn't for what? It's not for hauling stuff. <laughs> well, um, I, I think I convinced him this would be a, a nice addition to our fleet of airplanes that were for sale and that we could fly it and enjoy it a little bit and at the end of the day sell it and make a few bucks on it, which we luckily did. And I think that first one we paid $5,500 for. So. Flew it, flew it a year or two and, and sold it at a profit over that. So, you know, there, there there's uh, the profit was it was was obviously important, but the experience was even more important. There's going to be some people with heartburn over the idea that you were able to get a T6 for $5,500. <laughs> the first Mustang the company bought, we paid 12000 for it. So that, that'll really give you heartburn. 12000 for a flying Mustang. Yep. Yep. Oh, my goodness. That's uh, that that's amazing. So um, when was the first time you got a ride in the Mustang? Uh, the first time I got a ride in a Mustang was in Rockford at the air show. Um, I think it was probably in the mid 60s, 65, 66 range. And at that time, you could you could snag a ride in a Mustang for one dollar a minute. So I went with a fellow from St. Louis, rode in the back. And I gave him my $25 when we came in to Rockford, and we had to do a couple of go-arounds. So I got 35 minutes for $25. So that was the first Mustang bargain. So Was that, I mean, a lot of people describe their kind of uh, uh, first experiences uh, around a Mustang. Was that something that was a, a, a seminal moment for you? Um, well, it was something. I had always been interested in Mustangs. My, my interest in Mustangs really started with the post-war racing era, and, and I just was intrigued by those airplanes, and I, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, these airplanes from 46 to 49, you know, I see them in some of the books, but were those airplanes still around? And the majority of those airplanes were still around, and I just kind of intrigued. And I still today, I mean, I love the, the military schemes and 
and, and the authenticity and the restoration. But when I see a, a Mustang in civilian colors, yeah, I think it's really cool. You don't see them hardly anymore, but I, I think those are just really cool. That is that is pretty wild. So let, let's talk about kind of what qualifies as, as a Warbird, because I think obviously a lot of people think about the big ones that you see, the Mustangs, the Corsairs, or the Bombers. Uh, but when we talk about attainability, or where people can kind of start, it actually seems to go all the way down to some pretty small planes that are military versions of civilian aircraft. So tell me a little bit about how that that part of the market and as we kind of work our way up. That's uh, That's been kind of interesting. Um, in, the, in kind of the early days of Oshkosh, if you didn't have anything, uh, if you had anything T6 or above, you could, you could be a, quote, warbird. But uh, as the prices went up and the people started to appreciate the history of the airplanes, um, it went to some of the liaison airplanes, the, the, the smaller, less than 600 horsepower airplanes, um, Stearmans and all of the L-Birds, the, the military Cubs and Champs and all of those. So, so there's really, you know, even today, there's, there's this gigantic broad spectrum of airplanes uh, ranging from, you know, a 65 horse military Cub all the way up to you know four engine bombers so there's there's really kind of something for everybody out there yeah it's it, it i've always found it interesting that there's that inter that that angle of civilian aircraft that had military uses even like i think recently i saw an o2 um uh, with the uh, military version of the 337 if i have that correct right uh, um and and many of them have quite a history. Many of them served in you know, and, and in that case, I think was a, had a long Vietnam history of being a spotter and things like that. Yeah, and I and I think I think that that's that's an interesting observation because you know the we're unfortunately getting to the end of the greatest generation and and those guys are going away, but the later airplanes, the Korean airplanes, the Vietnam airplanes, um, you know, there's a lot of airplanes in those time frames that are you know relatively affordable but they also are very interesting to the people of the next generation after the greatest generation and so you know you go to air shows and uh, you know the, the the o2 is a fantastic airplane the l17 navion you know had a had a long history in the military so you know there, there's a lot of airplanes out there that, that that people can relate to and you know you're you're sitting under the wing of a mustang in an air show and guy comes by and he's talking to his kid or his grandson and you know hey that's what that's what your grandpa flew or that's what your mother worked on or remember you know that plant down the road that's abandoned that's where they made those airplanes so you know virtually everybody one way or another has a connection to these airplanes and I think that's one of the coolest things that the history I mean it's great to be able to fly a you know a 1492 horsepower p51 but not everybody can do that um, so to be able to share those airplanes with those people that, you know, that their relatives had a big connection to, I think is, is really important. Yeah. And I do like the fact that there's this opportunity for everyone to come in at whatever, whatever level fits where they are. And then of course, if they're able to grow over time into something else, that's, that's even better. Um, but I, are you also a starting point where you are for people to come in and Maybe they're looking for a bird dog. Maybe they're looking for, yeah, you know, we, for, for something for we, its for its nostalgia and for its history. Yeah. Well, we've we've pretty much handled virtually everything. I actually have a very nice bird dog for sale right now. Uh, it's based up in Canada, 
uh, it had a real interesting history as a as a glider tow airplane for the Royal Canadian Air Force, and it's it's been all restored. Very very nice airplane. Uh, I don't really have any Elberts right at the moment, other than that one. Uh, no O2s, but we've got a few T6s, T28s. Have a couple of T34s coming in, and and then some of the jets and some of the bigger airplanes are always coming and going. So, what do you what do you view as as some of the best starting points? If you know that someone uh, even if even if it's not necessarily a money issue, if, even if it's something where they come to you and say, "I've got aspirations for it, but I'm low time." Where, here's here where where do I want to start if I'm going to work with with you all the way kind of through? What do you usually point them towards? Well, I think um, you know if you're if you're looking at one of the World War II tailwheel airplanes, Mustang, Corsair, you know P40, those types of airplanes, then then, then the tailwheel skills are are super important. And, you know, the AT-6 um, is a, or SNJ, the Navy called it, is a fantastic airplane. Um, there's several really good schools around the country that you can go and get checked out in one of those airplanes and kind of see if you like it. If you have zero tailwheel time, then you need to get some time in a Champ or a Super Cub or a Husky or something like that. And just, you know, get the basic seat of your pants, looking out the window, you know, the glass panels and all that are fine, but you just need to know, you just need a need to be able to feel the airplane and see what the airplane is doing and then work your way up from there. If you're not interested in tailwheels, uh, then there's then there's a number of airplanes. The Beach T-34 is an excellent airplane. Um, T-28 is a great airplane. But I think, um, you know, some of the bigger airplanes that are heavier, like the T-28 and the Mustang or, you know, like that, are good airplanes. But I think you need some time in a, you know, a light twin or something that's a little bit faster. You need to be able to handle the mass of the airplane. You need to be able to think about, you know, think ahead, you know, where's this airplane going to be in 30 seconds? Where's it going to be in a minute? Mm -hmm. I'm cruising along at, you know, 11,500 feet. Oh, the airport is three miles away. Well, I need to plan ahead to get down to the pattern altitude in three miles. So, you know, there, there, there's a lot of things. And, and of course, the big, the, the bigger the airplane is, the more complicated it can be. Uh, so there, there's some systems knowledge. And I'm, you know, being an A and P, I kind of enjoy the systems knowledge. I I like that. I like learning that about these airplanes uh, and understanding the systems. I, I think that's you know I I enjoy it, but I think the guys that are flying the airplane, you know, also need to to understand that. Like T28s, there's a real good ground school down in Texas. Um, Stallion 51 down in Florida does the Mustangs and the T6 uh, and the L39 upsets. Um, so, you know, there's a number of uh, Tom Richards at Warbird Adventures does a great job in the T6 and basic tailwheel. And there's there, there's a number of schools out on the West Coast and stuff that can do that, too. So hmm. now when you talk about I mean, obviously, that that kind of splits things into two categories, the tailwheel aircraft versus the and what direction you're going in versus the T28 being, uh, uh, you know, obviously having the nose wheel. It, does that mean that there's even though there's a lot of systems to learn on the T28, does that make a, a Trojan a, a somewhat easier aircraft to fly? I, I'd always heard that a Texan was kind of like the ultimate trainer because you really have to you you have to work at it. It's not the not that easy. Well, they they're they're different airplanes. Um, certainly the 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 T6 or the SNJ is a tailwheel airplane. Very simple systems. Um, a much lighter airplane, a 5,300-pound gross airplane, and you know a T-28 is is a big airplane with a, with an engine that's more than double the horsepower, more systems, 
but it's a nose wheel airplane. So that's a little easier transition for some people. But you're still looking at an airplane, you know, around 8,000 to 8,500 pound airplane. So it's considerably heavier and there's a lot more mass uh, in that airplane than the, uh, the, than the T-6. So, you know, there's they, kind of a trade-off on, on various things. So. Yeah, I've always wondered, and, and maybe have some insight to this, that the, it doesn't seem like there's a progression between those two so much. It seems like some people are T6-directed people, and some people are T28-directed people. Um, there, you... there, there is a little of that, but I, you know, there, there are some of the people out there that have a T6, and then they have a, a T28, and, and, you know, a lot of my customers will buy an airplane and then have the airplane for four or five, six years. And then they call up, they say, look, I've done this. I want to do something else. You know, what would you do? I don't, you know, I, I've never, you know, I've, I've got 250 or 400 hours in my T6. I'd really like to fly a 1,425 horsepower T28. So, you know, I'll sell one and sell them another one. And, uh, you know, and people, you know, and a lot of the fighter guys, well, you know, I've got a lot of Mustang time. I'd, I'm going to sell my Mustang. I'm going to get a Corsair or a P40 just to experience the differences in the airplane. And, and, and they all have their, you know, they all have their differences. But at the end mm -hmm. of the day, they're interesting. They're historical. And uh, they've proven over time to be a really, really good investment. So, oh, yeah, I can imagine. Is, is, there, is there any type of progression path that's kind of common? Do people tend to do like Stearman's and then move towards the T6 or, or something like that? Oh, not really. I mean, you know, they tend to go up in up in size and, and horsepower, um, but, but I, there's not a really well-defined, I think, you know, in some cases, uh, uh, you know, they, they just want to do this experience. And if somebody comes in and they have, you know, 100 hours of tailwheel time in a, in a light airplane, a Champ or a Husky or something like that, you know, they need that T6 time. Mm -hmm. And they, they may do the T6 and that's, you know, that, that's kind of the top of the chain for them. Or they may say, you know, I want to do a Mustang or I want to do some kind of tail drag or fighter. Well, then you need that T6 time. It's really important. You know, one of the things I find fascinating and, and really cool in, in a way is that even though the values have gone up a lot, obviously, and they're, well, astronomically compared to the stories you told about <laughs> a long time ago, but but even recently when when values have gone up so much, when I look at some of the things on your site, they they seem attainable. I mean, if you want a T6 Texan, this isn't, you're not looking at, you don't have to have a million dollars of discretionary income to, to spend on an airplane. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that range, because I don't think a lot of people see something as massive as a T6 and think, well, it's actually less than if you wanted a Bonanza right now or something. Right. Yeah. It is they, from from that perspective, especially in the trainer category, they uh, are pretty good values. Now, you know, if you have a Bonanza or a Baron or something like that, you know, you've got five or six seats. Uh, you know, you've got all, better all weather capability. Um, you know, in the, in the T6, the T28, or T34, there's only two seats in it. It's not, you know, you're probably not going to fly it, you know, on a three week vacation, but you know, you've got air shows to go to, lots of fun things. Uh, the guys in the, in the T6s and the 34s and the 28s and some of the L-Birds now are really getting into the formation flying. And, you know, you've been mm -hmm. to Oshkosh, you've seen the, the mass formations. Those, those just don't happen randomly. I mean, there's a, 
rigid training and checking program to be able to fly formation in wavered air sports you know, airspace at Oshkosh or any other air show that has wavered airspace. You just can't go to your buddy in the hangar and say, hey, let's go to so-and-so and jump in and do some formation flying at the Sun and Fun or at Oshkosh. You, it's, it's, it's a very rigid, controlled situation, and, and right. it's worked out very well. The, uh, you know, the groups that do that, they're very serious about it, and I think that's just another level of proficiency that a lot of the pilots really like. They enjoy the discipline of that. Not, yeah, not so everybody it's, it's, was in the military. It's a passion, right? I mean, it's a passion that you can get into. So, I mean, I think, I think you know, one way of looking at it is economically, in terms of purchase price, people change over time. You 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 downsize your house. Different things change, yeah. and so yeah, sure, we've got you know, we 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 fly Bonanza with six seats in it because. Uh, we needed all the six seats, uh, but at some point in time, everybody's got their own life in the family, and you start not needing the six seats anymore. And at some point in time, you might say, "Hey, what I really want to do is that formation flying, or take something to an air show." And it's not—you're uh, uh, still in the same economic area if you want to switch over to something like that. Um, certainly that, do that. When you when you look at a lot of your customers, is that one of the things that that really attracts them to it? The idea that that they can buy a, a warbird and then kind of be on the other side of the fence, go and display it at air shows, display it at a lot of places and share the aircraft and take people up for rides in a different way than than, than you would in a GA aircraft? Well, I think, you know, I think the owners enjoy flying these interesting, nostalgic, uh, and in some cases kind of challenging airplanes uh, and I think they enjoy sharing that with other people. You know, I mean, not every not a, not every pilot owns an airplane. So, you know, and not every guy on the outside of the fence is ever going to own an airplane, is ever going to learn how to fly. But being able to share the airplane at a local pancake breakfast or anything like that, you know, is, is important to people. And, and people yeah. enjoy seeing these airplanes. And it's such a wonderful experience to share that. I know anytime that someone's offered me a ride in one of those types of aircraft, it's just, I'm in heaven and they love the ability of sharing that. And so the, it's it's pretty cool. It, it's, it, I think it's different than, uh, than the feeling you might have just kind of owning a, a plane that you use more as a tool um, and giving someone a ride. You're really sharing a piece of history, which right. is really neat. Exactly. And, then, and that, that, I think that's really important. Um, now, we most of the ones that we've talked about now, we're talking about either American or Canadian uh, aircraft. There, there's also a lot of aircraft out there, e even before we start getting into the real exotics, that um, uh, are a little like less known, uh, but still great, great, you know, really cool airplanes. Nanchang's uh, version or the Yaks or things like that. Um, Tell me a little bit about the opportunities for those types of aircraft, which I think historically have also been very economical and very interesting aircraft to, to you know, to show up with. Well, I, I think a, a lot of those airplanes have come in, in into kind of into to vogue, so to speak, uh, as the prices of the American airplanes went up a little ways. I think people looked for some alternatives, and there are a number of those. I being kind of a, an American history buff, I tend to do a little more with the American airplanes than mm -hmm. I do, you know, with the foreign airplanes. But we've sold a number of those in the past. Uh, there's there's some really good uh, type clubs 
on the Yaks and the CJs and, and the Red Star pilots and those guys. And that's one, one thing, virtually every one of these types, the T6s, uh, the T28s, the Mustangs, they have the North American Trainers Association. The T34 has the T34 Association. The, mm -hmm. the Navion group is now part of the uh, uh, North American Trainer Association because the Navions were built by North American. But I think that's uh, two things that I would recommend if you're interested in a certain type, join some of the type clubs. Even if you don't have an airplane, you can still join. And then I think there's a number of groups, the Commemorative Air Force and, and a lot of the museums that are always looking for people to volunteer and help them and get around. So you, you can't really stand on the outside of the fence. And a lot of aviation, be it pilot, mechanic, whatever, is being at the right place at the right time. But you know, when you stand on the other side of the fence, you need to go up and knock on the door to the museum or whatever it is and say, you know, I'm really intrigued by what you have. Can I sweep the floor? Can I help? Can I flip pancakes or something like that? So, I mean, you, you need to get your foot in the door. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that I think we need to continue to do is, with the younger pilots um, is, is give these younger pilots an opportunity to be involved. You know, I mean, back when I was growing up, I mean, you'd, you'd go out and, you know, you'd wipe somebody's airplane off for a ride. And we, we need a little more of that. And unfortunately, with the lots of things in the, in the crazy world today, uh, some of those opportunities are a little more difficult with the fencing and, you know, all of TSA and all of that stuff. But still, I mean, if somebody has a passion, there, there, there's a way to explore that passion. And it doesn't necessarily have to cost you a lot of money. So I think yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important. To, you know, if you know young people, you know, let them be involved. And you know, groups like the EAA and the AOPA and the Sun and Fun organization are, are, and there's hundreds of them around that are doing great jobs with young people, getting them involved at a young age. The Young Eagles program, uh, you know, those those are those are fantastic opportunities to get younger people involved. Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like we need to make up some big uh, stickers for outside of aircraft for everybody to go and more people to start using that say, ask me for a ride. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about some uh, when you start getting into some of the uh, more amazing aircraft that that are out there. Um, and, and you've had many of them on, on your on your site. But then you start to get into instead of trainers, real real fighters or, or well and then we'll get into the bombers a little bit later but um i know you've got i think a sea fury uh, uh that's uh that 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 you're doing right now that and and there's um th there's some other ones out, out there let me see if i can find a picture of the uh sea fury that you've got to share with uh with people i'll show uh this right now that Assuming that, that that I opened the correct plane. <laughs> yep, you, you did. Fantastic airplane. Certainly, uh, you know, really the Sea Fury is a post-war airplane, and the the aerodynamics are are very good. Uh, it, it's a lovely, lovely airplane to fly. Um, the original had the the British uh, Centaurus engine, which is a very interesting sleeve valve engine. It doesn't have the normal valves. It has a sleeve outside of the piston that goes up and down and rotates in the cylinder and opens and closes the intake and the exhaust ports. So mechanically, it's extremely interesting. And they had, of course, the British engines turned backwards compared to we, you know, what we have. And they had the five-blade Rotol prop. So it's it, it has a really cool uh, look on the ground. Unfortunately, kind of the support on that British engine is difficult. So most of the Sea Furies have been re-engineered 
or re-engined with an American engine. And it just it makes it that much more maintainable. And there's that, uh, there's, there's at least a, that one's what, a four blade on that one? Yeah, that's a four blade. That's got a, uh, a 3350 engine in it. Uh, it's actually a Sky Raider engine. Uh, Curtis Wright uh, uh, 3350 engine out of a Sky Raider and the four bladed props, a Hamilton standard off of some type of an airliner, I think. Wow. So when you start getting into whether it be post-war or actually, you know, uh, war uh, aircraft, that it, that seems like that's a whole different category. What do you counsel people about when they start thinking, I want to start thinking about, you know, aircraft in this in this category, aircraft that are uh, a lot <laughs> to handle? Well, you know, I, I there there again, I think we get back to the basic flying proficiency. And if it's a tailwheel airplane, the more tailwheel T6 time or like a beach 18 or, you know, some heavier tailwheel time would be great. Um, and then if it's a if it's a nose wheel airplane like the T28 or a King Cobra, those type of airplanes there, you get into, you know, the heavier airplanes, uh, twins, Barons, 400 series Cessnas, you know, that kind of weight and speed and thinking ahead of the airplane. Those are those are important things. And, you know, you're not going to jump from a, a Cessna 182 uh, to a T-28. You're not going to jump from a Husky to a Mustang or a Sea Fury in, in one leap. It's going to it's going to take a little bit. What do you what do you want to see someone generally do if they're looking at they come to you and say, look, my my even if they've already had a T-20, uh, uh, you know, uh, or a uh, SNJ for quite a while um, and they come and they want to move up to something really serious like a Corsair or something that's that's a lot of metal and uh, the last time I climbed up to one it, it felt like I was uh, you know climbing three stories up yeah well a, a lot of it I think there's really two two facets to that one is the pilot proficiency side and then the other is is kind of the attitude of the pilot okay I know I've got you know some steps to climb to get that way and I and I understand that I will do what it takes to get there. I'm not going to rush the process. I'm going to get the proper training uh, from some people that are, you know, knowledgeable about those airplanes, and then I'm going to I'm going to work my way up. And you know, that that progression and, and the speed of that progression is different for everybody. There's there's not a, a set hard and fast rule. Insurance companies dictate a little of that uh, based on kind of the overall portfolio of an individual pilot. Wow. What uh, when you think about the the high performance singles, what comes to mind as let's say one of the hardest ones, uh, one of the most challenging ones to fly? Well, there again, it depends on your background. I I had a lot of T6 time before I flew a Stearman. I kind of went backwards in my progression. I went from a Citabria to a T6, and I had several hundred hours of T6 time, and I had the opportunity to fly a Stearman, and it was frankly a little bit of a challenge. The gear is, I mean, you don't have a constant speed prop, you don't have retractable gear, you don't have flaps and that stuff, but the, the, the gear, landing gear on the, on the steerman is very narrow and the airplane sits high above the gear. So it, it, it's a different picture, uh, the geometry is different. And, you know, until you get used to it, I mean, it's in some ways it's harder to fly than the T6. Mm. And then you go to the Mustang and everybody says, Wow, that thing's got all that horsepower and all those things. But the Mustang has wider gear than the T6. If you touch down at the proper speed, 
and you're making your proper wind correction, it's actually a very easy airplane to fly. And mm. you will fly the Mustang 10 hours, and then they'll get back in the T6, and they'll say, wow, how did I even fly that airplane for 50 hours? So they're, they're all different. What about, uh, you, you've flown so many of these, what about some of the cats, the Hellcat or Wildcat, or, or even in the, in the Corsair? Yeah, I've flown the Corsair. I have never flown any of the other cats, um, so I can't really speak uh, on that. I've flown the Corsair and the, the TBM, the Mustang. Uh, what were your experiences on those? What were your, th- what are your thoughts? Yeah, I've always I've always been a Mustang guy. I mean that's all that's my favorite fighter, and I actually added up a, oh, a year or two ago, and I've been lucky enough to be involved in around 80 sales of Mustangs over the years, and I have probably flown oh, I don't know probably 45 different Mustangs. Luckily, really, you know, just in the in the big picture. I mean, I'm just a very fortunate person. You know, I sold it in a Cessna 150. I, did not have a military background, but I've kind of worked my way through the system, and um, it's I've had some fantastic opportunities to, to do these things. So, out of those, the only other one that you flew, you said, was the uh, um, was the Corsair. What was that one like? And 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 the Sea Fury. The the, okay. the 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 Sea Fury is the lightest, nicest flying of the fighters that I have flown. Um, the Mustang, it's, it's a Mustang. I mean, what, what more can you say? That's kind of everybody's dream. And it certainly was my, uh, my dream. Um, the Corsair has a big roomy cockpit. Um, the nose looked like, you know, it looks like it's 150 feet in front of the cockpit, uh, but it's kind of fun when you're flying. The, the Mustang nose is narrower and a little shorter, but when you're flying, uh, the Sea Fury is the same way as the Corsair. That nose sticks out there a long ways. So you can see instantly. You don't need to look and look at your ball on the panel. You can see if the nose is moving left or right really, really quickly. I mean, it's just a little teeny bit of rudder pressure, and that nose is all over the place. So you, you, you know if you're flying coordinated or not because the nose is out there telling you. <laughs> that's, that's definitely pretty interesting. What, um, what would you say, what comes to mind as maybe one of the most unique aircraft that you've come across in your uh, in your years of, of dealing with them? You know, I, I know th- to me, they're all kind of unique. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to sell a couple of B-17s over the years. Uh, the uh, Martin Marauder B-26, that's kind of a unique airplane. I never, I rode in one as a co-pilot, never, never was piloting command, but that's a very rare airplane. And uh, that, that would, that was pretty cool. Uh, it was to be involved in that. That was that was neat. It went to uh, Kermit Weeks down in Florida, who's one of the biggest collectors in the country, and um, he has it in his museum down there. It's not flying right now, but uh, Kermit has just completed a, a fantastic restoration of a Douglas A26 Invader, and it's planned to be at Oshkosh this year. So that's that's kind of neat. Yeah, it it is amazing at Oshkosh. You get to see some of these ones that there's one of or 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 you know, some very, very rare, you know, aircraft. Where, I, you mentioned a, a lot of the planes you end up seeing more than once, that they 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 stay just as we are caretakers, even of the planes that, GA planes that we fly, that, that are around. It, it, is the supply slowly growing because of restorations, or is it kind of static? What do you think is happening? Probably, probably close to static. Unfortunately, there will be, you know, some airplanes damaged every year. Uh, luckily, the technology is out there today to take what 
20 years ago was a total wreck and uh, rebuild the airplanes. There's some fantastic shops around that can pretty much reverse engineer anything they need to do on the airplane. Um, you know, you get into some of the engine parts and stuff like that, that's a little more complicated. But I mean, the basic structures of these airplanes, the ribs and the spars and the wing skins and all of that are pretty basic, simple, you know, 40s technology. It's not, you know, they're not titanium and that kind of stuff. So it, they, they can be rebuilt. So I would say, you know, probably in a couple of year time period, there, there's a plus factor in there. There are more airplanes coming on. Not, you know, in a year period, you're not going to see 25 new restorations, but you'll see three or four or a handful of new restorations. I know you help people find projects as well, because I know that you you also sell projects and, and project aircraft. Are those things that people are, come and say, look, I'm, I'm looking to find a, a, a core somewhere around the country or a wreck somewhere around or, or a find and restore something really unique? Is that, a, is that something that you, yeah, you work with? That. We've got several project airplanes for sale right now. Um, the quantity of projects that are out there has dried up somewhat because so many of them have been rebuilt and mm. they're out there flying on the circuit. You know, the, the positive of a half a dozen new airplanes every year, well, that's a half a dozen less projects. Um, so the, the projects are, you know, they're, they're getting a little harder to find. It used to be, I mean, you know, you, you, if, if somebody says, hey, I want a T6 project, you know, there were 10 of them for sale in the country. And, you know, yeah. right now there's probably two or three. That's it. What's the main reason that people would do a project like that? It, 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 I mean, in some cases, people, you think economics, but with aircraft, do projects are rarely economic gains. So what's the reason? Um, I think, you know, I'm an A&P, you're an A&P. Uh, we're kind of hands-on kind of people. Um, and I think we enjoy that challenge of taking something and, and, and making it better than we started with. Um, you know, and, and it may not make total economic sense, but you know, if you're if you're going to go out and spend, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars for a T-28, um, you know, that's a pretty big chunk of change. Or two, three million for a Mustang, that's a pretty big chunk of change up front. Uh, but if you buy a project for some number less, it's kind of really I tell people it's kind of like self-financing. You don't go out and borrow the money and, you know, make a payment every month. You don't need all the money up front for a project. You know, you start on the sheet metal and then we get close. Uh, you buy the tires and you send the engine out for overhaul and you get your radio guy to come and help you wire the airplane. So it really works out. You know, it's kind of self-financing the project. And when you get done, you know what you've got. And, you know, it's, kind of, and it's very similar to the guys, you know, with the home built, uh, you know, airplanes, the, the Vans RV series and, you know, all of those airplanes. I mean, the pride of ownership and the pride of I made this airplane, that's that's pretty cool. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Do you, you, every once in a while you hear one of these things about like the crated aircraft, uh, historic aircrafts that, that are that are found and able to be projects. Have you ever come across anything like that? Oh, there there are a few. The majority of those things end up to be kind of old wives tales. And for uh, yeah. a long time, not for probably the last 10 years, but I. You know, for a while, there was about a 10-year period where I had one guy call me once a year. Well, I know where there's some airplanes in a cave, and you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Send me the picture. Well, it's in Arizona or whatever. And there's something just popped up the other day on the Warbird Resource Group. 
about somebody found, I think it was eight hurricanes or something like that in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. You know, and then the, the Burma Spitfires, that thing's been going around forever. And so, you know. Well, I think the Ukraine one's correct. I think, though, uh, the condition is is that you're, you're maybe you'll get a, a little a little tag out of it or something. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, look at Great Glacier Girl, uh, P-38 from the ice cap. Uh, you know, in Greenland, I mean, that airplane is flying today, massive, massive restoration project. And uh, if, you know, there's a lot of, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. Uh, and I know I saw some pictures down in this cave where they had, uh, you know, a couple hundred feet under the ice cap and they had about a 10 foot diameter hole that they went down and they took that airplane apart in pieces. And that would, there's no way you'd catch me down there 200 <laughs> feet below the ice cap. I don't care what was down there. I'm not going to be there. Now, uh, I know there's, there's some, when we talk about some very different aircraft, you've got one that I saw on your site that I remember seeing uh, one of these up uh, near, uh, near my location up in Beverly Airport not that long ago, and that's a vampire. Yes. Yeah. Talk about a strange plane. There's wood in this one. I mean, take me through this. The 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 what they call the pod area, which is basically around the cockpit, basically from pretty much the front, just about even with the front spar. That is a molded plywood impregnated uh, structure, I guess you'd call it. Very much. I mean, it's a de Havilland airplane, and obviously de Havilland Mosquito. The whole airplane was built that way. The whole fuselage mm -hmm. it is, and this this is an early jet. Uh, this particular airplane has been extensively refurbished. Uh, it actually has a glass panel in it. That whole front wooden pod thing. That's you know that's one of the big problems with those airplanes. They sit around and they get moisture in there. Well, that's not a problem with this one because. Hundreds of hours have been spent redoing that. So if somebody wants something a little different, a single-engine two-seat jet, this is really a pretty neat option. And I, you know, it's you know, $159,000. Uh, it's you know, it's it's less than a T6, less than a T28, but you know, you're looking at a few hundred gallons an hour of fuel burn also. So it's it's kind of a trade-off. I didn't realize that it was actually. I mean, that that, that was the price point. That's that's. When you think about what you're getting for it, that's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it really is, and you know, it's got some spare parts and all the manuals, of course, with the airplane. So, I mean, if somebody wants something different, you know, everybody's got a T6 or a T28 or a T34, but not every airport has a Vampire. So. Yeah, I I remember again, my memory might not be perfect, but I I remember quite a while ago the one that I saw they had said that they had done carrier landings at some point where they do that gear up landing on a mat or something with the, the, the vampires, like from his, from a historic perspective. So I don't know what the story is, but it's a, it's a very, very unique aircraft. That is, that is for sure. Now that, 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 that may be an emergency procedure. Uh, and I, and I actually have a copy of the vampire manual, but I haven't had a chance to read it. So I'll, I'll have to look through and see if that's, <laughs> see, if there's a, see if there's a rubber matter, if that's another right. tale. Um, Bring 1200 mattresses and you'll be fine. So, so what's it take to tra transition into this? You're talking about an, you're talking about something that is less than a brand new 172. So what, right. what is the, if someone looks at this and says, Mark, that looks pretty amazing. Um, what do I need to do to go that route, if, if assuming they can afford that that fuel burn? Yeah, well, I actually had the 
this, this very discussion with a prospective buyer of this airplane earlier today. And the FAA, if the airplane comes down here, it would be in the experimental exhibition category. The FAA requires a minimum of 1,000 hours of flying time in order to qualify you in okay. that airplane to get your experimental type rating. You would have training to proficiency, and then you would take a check ride with an FAA-designated warbird. Exam. Are you saying a thousand total time or a thousand in that aircraft? No, no, thousand total time. Oh, okay, because that's not bad. Okay, no, awful lot of people out there with that. That doesn't sound yeah. sound crazy. So right. someone comes to you and says, "Oh, okay." So I come to you. I've got a couple thousand hours plus of flight time, and I say, "What is it going to take? What What would well, you tell me?" Well, it's it's going to take training to proficiency. Um, the owner of the airplane has got a couple very good instructors that would be available. And then um, there are several FAA designated pilot examiners. So you would do your proficiency, go through all the maneuvers, emergency procedures, you know, various types of takeoffs and landings, uh, dead stick, uh, simulated flame out landings, those types of things. And then your instructor would sign you off in order to take your check ride, just really like a private pilot. I mean, you don't, hmm. you don't take your check ride until your instructor says you're ready to go. So you'd get signed off in this, okay, for, to take check ride. And then you would schedule with one of these examiners and you would get together with him and you would take your check ride and basically demonstrate to him your knowledge of the airplane, your knowledge of systems and your knowledge of the flight characteristics and, and procedures in the airplane. So it's a, it's, it's a pretty straightforward deal. And, and that experimental aircraft type rating applies to experimentally certified turbine airplanes. And it, it's um, also for any piston airplanes that are over 800 horsepower, uh, like the T-28 and some of the other ones. Now, the Mustang is in limited category. Some of the P-40s are. Um, so they actually have a, a limited category type certificate that does not require uh, an experimental type rating. But the P, some of the P-40s, the Corsair, the Sea Furies, uh, those types of airplanes are not in the limited category. So they, they will need this experimental type rating. And it's not you know, I mean, if you're a proficient pilot, it's not a big deal. Mm. So, as as someone who, as someone who is a uh, not just obviously an experienced pilot, but AMP mechanic, and then also dealing with uh, the all the maintainers and and having experience with all these aircraft, how do you help quantify the other big question? I'm sure you get, which is, what's maintenance going to be like on an airplane like this? Um. Yes, there will be maintenance, no question about it. You're dealing with a vintage airplane. Um, you need to, you know, people need to understand that. You're not going to taxi it over to your FBO and say, you know, I need this oil filter for my Continental engine. Um, you know, there, there is a network of people that are knowledgeable about these airplanes, and, and that really gets back to the type club, um, North American Trainer Association. They have a, a, a you know, a forum board, and people are always asking questions. Hey, I need to get this overhauled. I need to get this done. Does anybody have, you know, this inspection cover? And pretty much all of the airplanes have that network of people. Some of them, they're a little more formal, like North American Trainers, uh, T-34 Association. But then others, you know, that there's not that many airplanes. You know, it's just a network of, of the owners. And, you know, especially on the military side of the airplanes you know if they if they made 10 airplanes they made spare parts for 20 airplanes so mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of spare parts out there uh, you can't just necessarily pick up the phone and get them you have to kind of be you know in the loop a little bit but the, but they're out there and the, you know if a guy has you know 12 extra generators for his t28 
you know, would he trade one of those generators for a fuel pump? Probably would, you know. So yeah, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of that. And there again, that's getting to know the people, uh, being in the right place, being inside the fence. Those, those are all important factors. Yeah. I have heard, and, and please tell me, correct me if I'm wrong on this, that, that some, of, some of the aircraft, because they were designed to be maintained, designed for heavy use, um, such as the T6 Texan, the BT-13 Volte, things like that, were, are fairly reasonable aircraft to, to maintain They're, with being accessible. And in other words, yeah, just like any plane, things are going to go. But it, you know they're not they're not necessarily going to bury you um, uh, in in maintenance. What are your thoughts on that? Well, take for example the T twenty eight. You have to think about the purpose of that. That was an advanced trainer to teach you know relatively low time novice guys how to fly the airplane. But also your maintainers that were in the military, those guys went in. They went to their six months of tech school to be an engine guy or a sheet metal guy or an avionics electric, you know, electrician type guy. Um, and they did that, you know, the, the rest of their hitch and they were gone. So there's this constant turnover of the mechanics in the military. Uh, so the military manuals are excellent. The wires are all numbered. They make sense. The cannon plugs are numbered. You have the maintenance manuals. All of that makes sense. There's good troubleshooting guides. Um, but for example, the T-28, up in the nose wheel well, there's a little boot up there you take out and there's actually like a little ladder and you can take another couple panels out and you could stand on this ladder with your feet down on the ladder with your head you can tor look towards the front you can see the back of the engine the accessories you turn or look behind you and you see the back of the instrument panel so i mean it's very uh, you know the circuit breaker panel in the t28 has a couple of zeus fasteners on it you open that up and i think there's three big cannon plugs you can undo those cannon plugs and set the circuit breaker panel on the bench so i mean they're designed to be maintained you know, flown flown a lot by novice people and maintained by people with a, I'm not going to say a low skill level, but a pretty narrow skill level. Mm. But you know, look around at our our average mechanics today. I mean, to get your A and P license, you've got to understand engines, you've got to understand electric, you've got to understand hydraulics. You know, all of fabric, all of those things. So our mechanics today are a little more generalist mechanics, and most yeah. of them have a lot more experience than the guys in the military did. So, yeah, relatively easy to take care of. When I when I think of the challenges for maintaining an aircraft, usually I end up thinking about it in two categories. One of them is access, which you you talked about, for example, um, it, it with being able to just get into everything because so many regular GA planes, like oh, so that's what you need to get at, like good. As long as you've got eight foot arms, then you're fine. Like um, eight foot arms that are super narrow. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but you know, access is always a big problem. And then the other is that there is 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 everything rebuildable? Can something be disassembled, O-rings replaced, up to you know, uh, overhauled uh, in in many ways, overhauled in the field? My impression is uh, that that these a lot of these aircraft check both of those boxes that access isn't going to be your problem and even though you may have to do maintenance most things are meant to be rebuilt is that the case yeah i i, I think so i mean they you know certainly the american airplanes you know the o-rings that are in the brake master cylinder or in the hydraulic cylinder uh you know are pretty much standard things there's a few 
different seals like some of the uh, some of the flap seals and some of the things in the in the T6 are a little different. They're not standard O-rings, they're cup seals, but those are available from a number of suppliers. So it, it, there, there's really nothing that's, you know, quote, unobtainium anymore. Mm -hmm. And there again with the CAD and reverse engineering and, and now that the FAA is uh, uh, loosening up some of their approvals on some of these parts, owner-produced parts, and and some of these parts that are non safety critical parts uh, they're allowing a lot of leeway on the older airplanes which which is good and you know that stuff has not proven to been to proven to have been a safety of flight situation you know a lot of those little hydraulic leaks here and there you know that's more of a nuisance than it is a, it's not a safety yeah. of flight situation usually and and there's shops uh that uh, you know I've, I've seen you list many times who you know covington overhauled or other like if you've got something like a texan or a volte you've got shops that um that can overhaul those engines fairly easily is that true yes. yeah there there are uh like so many things today I mean, you know it takes a little longer than it did five years ago but mm -hmm. uh, they, they're out there i mean there, there's quality work being done all the time on on the engines and on the accessories and you know the heavy-duty structural stuff, ground-up restorations, you know Oshkosh award-winning type restorations. There's a number of shops that are doing that today. So, wow. So there's definitely a, a there's definitely a lot of options uh, available. Um, now you have in, in your in your career, and you can see the smirk on my face. You have uh, had an opportunity to to sell to some pretty cool people. Uh, did I understand that uh, if you go see uh, Top Gun Maverick, that Tom Cruise personal T, uh, P-51 is uh, an airplane you sold? I cannot confirm or deny that, but I will <laughs> smile when you mention it. <laughs> so that may have passed through your hands for that. Any, any, Anyone else or any other stories oh, or name yeah, drops you want to make? I mentioned Kermit Weeks earlier, uh, Palm Springs Air Museum, Kavanaugh Flight Museum, the Collings Foundation. Uh, Lone Star Flight Museum, uh, you know, as far as some of the big collections of airplanes, I've dealt with pretty much all of those people. Um, I've been lucky enough, uh, if you look, get a copy of the Forbes 400, there are several of my customers on there who I will not mention, but uh, they are there. I recognize the names. Uh, got to do a few other cool things. One year at Reno in our box, we had the, the first man and the last man to uh, walk on the moon. That was pretty cool. To get to meet those guys, I uh, was lucky to see a uh, space shuttle launch with John Glenn. Uh, wow. Uh, I was able to take my father to that. Kurt Brown, who's the Warbird guy, was the commander of that mission. Uh, he invited me and a number of the Warbird people down to the Cape to see that launch. That that was pretty cool. So I've been, uh, been on aircraft carrier a couple of times. I'm just, you know, all, all around, I'm just a very, very lucky individual that, that picked this little segment of aviation to get involved in. And, and, and it's been great for all these years, and it's still great. Wow. I mean, the last thing I want to ask you about is, as we as as we you know march along in the years, it seems that what's starting we're starting to get more and more uh, into an into a category where people are are getting their hands on modern jets as as being their historic aircraft that are flying. Are, what are your thoughts? What are you seeing in that area? We've seen privately owned Harriers. Uh, uh, all, all sorts of things in there. So what what's happening at that? I would think is the ultimate level of uh, of people getting personal ownership of of warbirds. Well, as manageable as the World War II 
bombers and trainers and fighters and the post-World War II airplanes, the Sea Furies and the O2s and all that, as manageable as those are for a private individual, um, the you know F-14s and Harriers and those types of airplanes, uh, there's a number of A-4s out there. Most of those are operating on military contract aggressor things. Um, the, the logistic support that is required for some of those airplanes is probably very limiting to who's going to want to own those airplanes. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, some of, some of that stuff's not even available, but, you know, there are some, uh, some of the, uh, the, the MiGs and the more the SU-27s and those types of airplanes. There are some in civilian hands, um, F-5s and that kind of stuff. But most of those airplanes, you know, it takes a gigantic dedication as well as, you know, <laughs> a pretty good checkbook. To, you can buy the airplanes, but 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 to maintain those, you know, liquid oxygen systems and you know, high high three thousand pound hydraulic systems. There's some logistics there, but you know, there again, we're lucky enough that we have uh, owners that are interested in that have the have the ability uh, to be able to field those airplanes and take care of them properly. I mean, every year at Oshkosh, we see some pretty cool really modern kind of airplanes. Yeah, so I, it is It is truly amazing. Well, Mark, I'm looking forward to seeing you in a couple weeks at, uh, at Oshkosh. Um, lots of cool stuff. You will be, tell everybody where you're going to be out in the Warbird area. Uh, we will be in the Warbird area, just northwest of the Warbird control tower. of a motorhome there with a tent in front of it. Uh, I will be there all week, uh, and it's actually less than two weeks. I think it's 12 days now or less. I know. Actually, as I was saying that, I was realizing, oh, man, like it's like time to it start packing comes, and flight planning. It comes quickly and it ends way too soon some of the time. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, that, that is our biggest event every year. Uh, it's, it's a great place to show off some of the airplanes we have, inform people of the other airplanes that we have that are not there. But, you know, you still... You get to meet the people, uh, people come up and talk to you and you share information, you know, and, and you know, years ago, Paul Poberesny says, we go for the airplanes, but we come back for the people. And I think that's a very, very true statement. Very, very, very true. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. And for anyone else who's out there, hopefully we'll bump into you ourselves there at the show. Go over and see Market Courtesy. I'll be going over and stopping by as well. And uh, you can learn about all these different things because again, you can find your way into Warbirds for uh, less than uh, than a 182 out there. You can find your way into Warbirds for more than, uh, you know, a, a whole uh, block of houses if you want. So it all depends on where you're looking, where well, you're looking you to be in the spectrum. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for taking time to join us here uh, on Social Flight Live, and I really do appreciate it. Glad to do it. Thank Excellent. You. Have a great evening. Thank you. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We will be back next week on Tuesday, July 18th with Dave Hall, the owner of Moto Art and Plane Tags. They do some really amazing things by taking aircraft that they get out of boneyards and other famous places of, of retired aircraft and turning them into art uh, for um, all sorts of places, offices, furniture, or into plane tags that anybody can own. And so very, very cool story of his life and that business that we're going to talk about then. And then, as we talked about, it's Air Venture Week. 
We'll be getting posting some things uh, from then, but we won't have a social plate live that week. And then we are back on Tuesday, August 1st, with Christine Grinder Kelly from the United States Air Force. She was the first woman to fly the F-35 Lightning and has a fantastic story and will put you in the cockpit of that amazing aircraft. Until next time, I'm Jeff Simon for Social Flight. Thank you so much for joining us, and I wish you all blue skies.